3: 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
2: Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Sets Podcast. My guest today is keyboardist extraordinaire Bill Payne. Bill, good to have you on the podcast. Bob, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, sometimes you're referred to as Bill, sometimes you're referred to as Billy do you care what's going on there? Not often.
4: I mean, uh, my mother finally called me Billy for a while <laughs> when that was the rage. I Normally when people ask, I say it's, it's Bill. But if they want to say Billy, just don't call me late for dinner.
2: Okay. So you're out with Little Feet now. You were out with the Doobie Brothers. What's your relationship between the two acts now? Little Feet, I'm the... Uh, Leader of the band we've got a couple of new members, Scott
4: Sherrard, Tony Leoni on drums and um, guitars. Tony plays uh, drums uh also sings which I didn't realize he did. Um, we have Fred Tackett, Kenny Granny, Sam Clayton from the original band Fred although came in a, a little later, but we've known Fred I've known Fred since 1969 uh so that relationship is that it's family. The Doobie Brothers, I started work on their second album um, and began that process with them. I played on a lot of their stuff, including when Mike McDonald joined the group. Uh, and He had two songs, What a Fool Believes and Minute by Minute. He, uh, I said, you play play those songs. I'll play some high strings or whatever. But I've known Tommy Johnson and Patrick probably since 71, 72, I think. So we all go back a long way. I spent, uh, up until a year and a half ago, I was touring with the Doobie Brothers for two years, excuse me, seven years. And uh, then Michael joined and we were all out one big happy family. And uh, I, I still stay in touch with the guys. So it's,
2: I have two sets of family, I guess. Well, I guess the question would be, would you ever go on the road with the Doobie Brothers again? Or is that in your past?
4: I, I'd go out with them again if if the uh <laughs> inclination hit and and all systems were go and it was uh, something I could do to help and vice versa yeah it, I, I kind of keep a a, a laissez faire attitude toward that that, that thing Bob with, with whomever I'm working with to be honest it's uh I don't try and cut people off but you know uh there's only so many hours in the day too so you just wait out like 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 you do I'm sure
2: yeah, well, I'm, it's, it appears from the outside that you decided, because the Doobies are still on tour, that you decided to leave that to get back with Little Feet. Would that be an accurate description? An absolute accurate description. And the
4: reason I did it uh, was Little Feet came upon some pretty good management in the form of Bob, uh, excuse me, uh, Ken Levitan and uh, Vector out of Nashville. In fact, when I when I spoke to the Dubies, they said, "Well, when we heard you went to, to Vector Management, we kind of figured your time with us would be limited." So I said, "Well, you guys figured it out before I did, but yeah, you're right." So, how'd you end up with Ken? Uh, we, I got a call from a a, a a person that said, "If you're making a switch, because I, I told him we were, you might want to check these guys out." So that that morphing into to vectors system and with Ken Levitan, who's a great guy, I I I've known Ken for a number of years because of Lou Harris and other people, but uh, I thought they they took about two weeks or or more to decide whether they would handle the And I said the entire time, I said, look, don't worry about it. If if I, I want you have no obligation to us. So if you're going to work with us, let's make sure that you feel comfortable with it. We would love to have it happen, but I'm a realist at the end of the day. So let's let's see where this flows with with how you're divining to make this choice. Uh, all I can tell you is that I feel with, with doing an interview with with you, you for example, uh, that's part of of, of uh, Levitan and, and Vector. And the visibility we have these days is why you and I are having a conversation. Uh, I don't discount Little Feet in my career with Little Feet or or, or what we represent in the musical world out there. But you need people to to help in this
2: business. And these guys have done nothing but uh, great things for us. Well, since you've been in the game for a long time, what have you learned about management? Well, I actually managed Little Feet myself with Paul Brer.
4: It's a thankless job, (laughs) first and foremost. Uh, You get blamed for things that maybe you shouldn't be blamed for. You get credit for things that maybe uh, you did some minimal research into, and it paid off. Uh, But I I, I do know that, that management with the right people can open doors that are normally closed. Uh, it's about perception at the end of the day it's also about who you who, who you have speaking on your behalf uh if it's about connections uh, unlike music which is I was thinking about Igor stravinsky earlier today you know with AI and all the 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 stuff that's going on there with regard to writing letters to composing songs on up and down uh I told this friend of mine I said look you know we're not going to stop AI, but you're not, you're also not going to stop musicians and, and composers and creative people. They, they don't compose and write and are creative because they want to. They actually have to. That's the way Stravinsky put it. Uh, he, whatever is in your head and it needs to come out, that's what you're doing. And uh, I feel that Look, I'm 74 years old, so I mean, I hope I can do this for a while longer. Knock on wood, so far so good. But I don't pretend to know much about anything about AI, but I know a lot about human beings. And those that are creative are going to create, not because uh, the money is there necessarily or that uh, the path to scoring the next Brad Pitt movie is there. They're going to do it because they have the ability to and it needs to come out.
2: Okay, so how much runway is there for Little Feet? Little Feet had Lowell George, and then Lowell George unfortunately passed away. You continued under varying incarnations. As you said, you're 74, but you do have hope to do this for a while. You're hooked up with Ken and Vector. What's the dream at this point in time? I'd like to get... uh
4: some new songs recorded as a part of the dream. I've written 20 songs with Robert Hunter, of which four have been recorded by Little Feet, which leaves 16 that haven't. And not all 16 of them are, should be recorded with Little Feet, by the way. Written eight or nine songs with uh, Paul Muldoon, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning poet poet and uh, teaches at uh, uh, back East, let's see, whatever the big university is in New Jersey. um, at any rate, I, the the dream for me is nothing substantial along the lines of of getting out in front of people and taking bows. It's it's having the the ability to create music, new old, continue the conversation of playing with people that are extraordinary musicians. Little Feet Bob has always had the the attitude. Let's say that John Coltrane and his band had. Um, I assume that. Uh, uh, it's more of a jazz uh, thought process than rock and roll. It, it, it figures more on, on musicianship than, than, uh, uh, was, you know, the, the, the visual, I, th- I think the music actually is, is more important to us. And, um, uh, I'm not knocking, I'm not knocking rock and roll. I love rock and roll. Uh, but I, I, uh, I think to get out and play the type of music that Little Feet plays, a song that Don was at one point, and he had, had, uh, they were playing at this, uh, one of the theaters down in New Orleans, I think, uh, uh, Stanford Theater, I I can't think of the name of the theater, but he said they were doing Waiting for Columbus, and he says, and it was, and I said, harder than you thought? He said, yeah. I said, well, we didn't do it to trip you up. It was just that it was uh, the type of music that we would write would be inclusive of, of hopefully, for our standpoint, of, of good songs, great musicianship as well, and uh, twists and turns within the arrangements. Not unlike what uh, the Grateful Dead or took another group, to Steely Dan, for example. <laughs> Those are tough arrangements to learn. So it's not like oh, Atlanta, which which I wrote. Law, Law said you can't write a hit record. I go can can can. You know we're back and forth on that. And so my idea of a hit record was having a chorus come up at you know a minute and twenty four seconds, I guess. Um, so it was not a hit record, but it's been something that people really like and and still respond to, and it's uh it fits any age group. A another song like Voices on the Wind. Uh, our engineer. And, producer, co-producer with me, George Massenburg, once said, what does that song mean? I said, well, in a feisty mood, I said, I don't know that it matters what it means. Uh, I want people to read into it. The Laker organization read into it when Kareem Abdul-Jabbar went into retirement, and they used it as his theme song. So that was kind of proof of the pudding there. Uh, Playing in Little Feet's like playing in 10 different bands. You'd have to to be in 10 different bands to do the the breadth of material that we write and conceive and and push through. And it's not always
2: easy to do that, by the way. Let's, uh, you brought up a couple of interesting things. Let's uh, stop for a second on Robert Hunter. How did you meet Robert Hunter? How did you end up writing with him? And what was the process like? I met Robert Hunter
4: through Cameron Sears uh, Cameron was was uh, um, co-managing with John Share from New York, and uh, we were coming up to another record. And Cameron said, "Would you like to write with with uh, with Bob?" With so I said, "You know, let's let's see what happens." So Hunter sent me some lyrics, and uh, that took a, a second or two for us to, because I thought, "Oh, let me talk to him." He doesn't want to talk. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, well, if he doesn't want to talk, then what, what What? the hell are we doing? So Bob circumvented everything and just sent me some lyrics. And I wrote to them. I sent it back. He goes, this sounds great. And we just kept going. And then about, I'd say, five or six songs into it. I'll get to the process in a second. But about five or six songs into it, he says, why don't you send me the music first and then I'll write lyrics to that I go okay so we did a bunch like that the the point was we never met we never spoke on the phone uh we didn't do zoom meetings we didn't do anything <laughs> we just we just uh he would send me music and I would write to it I' uh I, I mean he sent me lyrics excuse me and I set melody and and chords and whatnot to it or we do it the other way around and we did 20 songs like that uh probably over about I'd say 200 plus emails so I said at one point I go Bob I'm sure you're a very nice man but this is this is kind of like a, a a Guatemalan internet bride feeling to it so uh but we never met we, we were going to get together for a picnic up in his place in Northern California and he fell ill uh so we canceled that and I think he also f- thought we're making such good progress the way we're doing it. Why don't we just leave it the way it is rather than the the way he would write with other people where he'd actually get together with them.
2: And I live in Montana, by the way, so I'm sort of in a remote area. Okay. So let's just assume he sent you the lyrics. What was your process in terms of coming up with the music? I would
4: do what, what I'm recording on now. Our conversation is a Zoom recorder. Tom Garnsey, who's another friend of mine that we write music together, he gave it to me. He says, "Why don't you use this to write music?" And I said, "Oh, okay." Uh, that way, what I could be doing is sitting there playing "Mary Had a Little Lamb," let's say, and then five minutes go- later, go, "What was I playing?" Was I going da 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 da, or was I da da da? da and then that was going to take me off into another direction. The Zoom recorder was my lifelong my lifeline to. To the, uh, the path I was going to take to write these songs. Uh, it, it, it made it a lot easier when on, uh, out of that 20 songs, one song he says, you know, I don't like, it, it just sounds, I hate to use the word, but it sounds pedestrian, what you wrote. I said, okay. Uh, I was trying to take it to an Irish pub. I'll get back to you in two days. Two days later, I sent it to him. He goes, Oh my God! What what is this? This is this is great. Uh, I, I emailed it back. I said, I took it out of Ireland. and I took it down to South America, and I said. And he says, you know what I like about you? You don't let anything stand in the way of of anything. You just do what the hell you want. I said, well, what else do we have, man? I mean, I think the lyrics are superb. It was about a dragon, and I just opened it up to more changes, more. Of a, uh, I'd say magic realism within the lyrics that I want to, to apply rather than to put the pamphlet, the uh, uh, the Irish pub on top of it. So it was, a, it was a the the freedom we gave each other was. Look, I won't mess with your lyrics. I will tell you, Bob, if, if there's something that I, I wouldn't have said or have a tough time singing. And every time I made those suggestions, he's like, "Boom! Try this," and we were we were right in there. So it was a it was a fascinating way to. It taught me how to write music, even though I'd been writing songs for for many many years. Uh, but it opened me up when I was writing with Paul Muldoon, uh, w- with other people. I, I
2: I had something where I had confidence that I could do it. Okay, but you're also a lyricist, so when you're working with Hunter. Did you ever feel like, hey, I wanna put in some words here, I wanna change something? I might have tried it once and I got shut
4: down pretty quickly. So I said, okay, I understand the rules. Let's do it let's do it that way. I mean he's a much better lyricist than I am, but I'm not a bad I'm not bad at it either, but I'm not but I'm not Robert Hunter. So but he's not me. Uh I think the the biggest compliment we gave each other was was just uh I said something like, you know, what what I when I write and compose what I'm doing to your lyrics, the music is already there. And he says, yeah, but it takes a composer to draw it out. And we kind of left it at that.
2: Now you mentioned, "Oh, Atlanta, you were saying, well, it wasn't a hit. Well, in reality it was, I mean, in 1974, it was all about FM. And that was the first time that Little Feet got any significant uh, rock radio airplay and it was funny because it was seen as more of Lowell's band, but you're the one who had the successful track. So what was going on on the inside? Well, the inside is like a lot of bands. Uh, there's uh,
4: you'll you'll usually have two, maybe three people that are you know vying for the uh, uh, you know the cotton candy or whatever it is you're, you're going after, and uh, Lowell as in the beginning was my mentor. Essentially i am writing a memoir called carnival ghosts. I've taken an inordinately long time to get to meeting law, probably 30, 35,000 words, uh, to describe what it is like to, to come out of a solitary sitting at the piano playing, you know, six years later after starting at age five, maybe playing a little bit of Mozart, uh, certainly eight years later playing some Rachmaninoff, etc., and all the while being encouraged by a teacher that allowed me to improvise. Uh, so when you get into a band, you come from that solitary existence to now there's a, a platter on the table full of food and you got anywhere from five to six guys that want, it's like a boarding house reach kind of thing. How do you maneuver within that? that category which is really what you're asking and it's it can be a fight and often turns into a fight uh george harrison certainly knew about that fight so did brian jones with keith and mick uh you know the strong prevail is what happens and so you have to really uh, have a commitment to what you're asking the first time i played atlanta for the band which was when we were doing a, a session uh for little feet we we were doing rock and roll doctor and alan Toussaint as he was putting horns to it the band looked like looked at me like yeah so what and i went uh you know what we're playing this song whether you like it or not i kind of pushed it through and it's not the only song that that, that happened that way and i'm sure Lowell came into us with a few things we go yeah yeah cool what do you want to do and uh, when people listen to the record "Hoy Hoy," for example it starts off with uh, Rocket in My Pocket. It's it's a it's with Lowell playing acoustic guitar. I want the purity of Lowell's voice, his guitar playing, acoustic guitar, to ring through, and then I followed it up with the band to show what happens when the band gets a hold of it. It turns into not necessarily something different, but it can oftentimes be uh, vastly different because of the rhythm, because of... Certain chord changes may be dropped or included. Uh, Fat Man in the bathtub. That's just an arrangemental thing, as is, and Dixie Chicken from the piano in both cases or keyboards in both cases. But they add to what the song is and how it registers in your mind when you hear it. It's not, it doesn't make me a writer on the song, but it, it adds life and provides a background to hear the song. So Lowell George was also uh, one of the very first to include band members that didn't write, like Richie Hayward, Sam Clayton, you know, uh, Kenny Gradney. We split the publishing. We didn't split writers, but we split the publishing. Just for that type of thing. So if somebody came in and threw in some licks or uh, or whatnot, uh, they would be, be, be covered. I mean, trying to sustain a band is a very difficult thing because of egos. And, uh, uh, you know, we, we did our best to try and circumvent that, but human beings are such as they are. It's a, it's a delicate process. So was
2: Lowell jealous that you had the hit? I don't think so. Uh, I, uh, I think
4: what Lowell wanted, and, and he, he proved, uh, at least initially, with Warner Brothers uh, on Sailing Shoes, which is our second album, that was his territory. He was carving out his own road. Now, the first album had songs that we co-wrote, we We, I don't know if we wrote anything on the second album. We might have co-written one or two songs, but, but he decided to draw a line to say, here's who I am. And... I think he did it in a very brilliant fashion in that he, he had a song like Easy to Slip, let's say. And, uh, that was quintessential lows. It, it was great lyrics, great melody. Uh, the phrasing was impeccable. And, uh, uh, I was still kind of sitting on the sidelines applauding the guy. And then, but thinking as, maybe as we grew as a group that we would, we would write more, uh, that, uh, a group is not like backing up James Taylor, or Bob Seeger or Jackson Brown. You you walk in there with a eye to eye, not like, hey, can I? May I? It's eye to eye. And that's uh, that's what the advantage of being in a band is. It's also an extreme disadvantage if you don't agree with each other.
3: Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury
2: Let's go back to the beginning. So, you said you were taking piano lessons since age five. What was the incentive for that? A little girl across the street was playing piano, and I thought
4: if she could do it, I should do it. Her name was Marilyn Newell, it was in Ventura, California. And I lived up on a hill with a a gorgeous view. I'm sitting here in Montana with a gorgeous view. And uh, when I finally found the right teacher, uh, I, I marched into her piano room uh, where I was going to take the lessons, her living room, I guess. And it was the theme to Davy Crockett. And I I played it for her. And she said, when you come back for your lesson next week, I'll write down what you played for me so you can see what it is and we're going to start your first lesson. Which she did, and I still have it. And uh, it was a multitude of notes, but, My first lesson was C D E followed shortly thereafter by C B A with my left hand. And I got to say, Bobby, when I hit the left hand, it like the, the minor, as opposed to major tonality was like entering into exotic, an exotic world for a five-year-old. Um, it, it connotated different images to me than da, bah, bah, more of a major feel, or as a major. Da, bah, bah, bah. The, the minor was, more, as I said, more exotic. It was uh, it opened up a world that I, I wasn't uh, really familiar with, but I wanted to know a lot better, and so that was uh, uh, what music does, at least it does for me, and probably for a lot of people, especially musicians, but but not always uh it opens up those 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 avenues in your head that connect the dots between things, between other art, uh, between food, but between everything. Uh it's it's a circuitry that's that's plugged into to who you are as a human being and what you want to say ultimately. And the trick as you're growing through the the process of learning music and applying it to who and whom you are <clears throat> is how do you want to represent it in what you write, uh, be it lyrics, what you compose as musical interludes within those lyrics, or maybe just as instrumental music. How do you fit in with James Taylor, Bob Seger, uh, Barbie Benton, uh, Bonnie Raitt, <coughs> whoever I'm playing in the studio with, how do I take that that musical background that I have and apply it to, to different forms of music? and Fortunately, because of my upbringing of, of playing, let's say Bach, I play a Bach fugue for a little bit, and then I would zoom off into something else and play just strictly what was in my heart and head. Then I would come back to the music and play that. So I kind of had a an open dialogue with with the uh, with the uh, more formal aspect of music, and attached it to the the world of the mind, which can take you anywhere. It's like a dream.
2: Okay. You're in Ventura, California. What are your parents doing for a living? How many kids in the family?
4: I have a brother three and a half years younger than I am, who at one point tried to take piano lessons. didn't work. I had a sister that was nine years older, born in 1940. She had taken piano lessons. It didn't work for her either. For for whatever reason, Uh, it stuck with me. Uh, my dad uh, worked as a mechanical uh, engineer over at Point Magoo. Uh, he was a civilian, but within the uh, the context of working for the Navy, I guess. Uh, my mother was a state at home mom. Uh, my family was from Texas. Uh, my brother, uh, at that time, was the only person in the family not
2: born in Texas. He was born in California. Okay, so you're in California. Based on what you're saying, you fiddled around on the piano and you made some progress before you even went for lessons.
4: Yes, yeah, the first song by, uh, <clears throat> my mother taught me and watched her play, but I couldn't play it like her, it was Vaya con Dios. And it was Barry Ford and uh, Les, uh, Les Paul. I still have the album cover for it. When I did solo shows, I showed him that album cover. It's just just, uh, deep, rich, uh, excuse me, uh, not album cover, but but sheet music. And uh, yeah, the warmth of sitting on your mother's lap. You're in a basement that's cold, a little scary. You're at a piano with the the keys are chipped a little bit. And she's showing you where to place your fingers to play the melody. Uh, to me, that 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 submitted a, a great bond at that age to my mom, uh, and it introduced me to an instrument that to this day uh, still provides and provokes uh, my 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 muse. What I what I sit down. I don't often sit down with an agenda. I'll just sit down and play a little bit. And uh, so I'm react- reacting on a, on what's on a, a tactile information from what, the way my fingers hit the keys. Uh, and importantly, what I'm hearing, and I'm in full recognition that Beethoven, who is deaf, uh, was not provided that. But I also know that uh, a trick that my teacher taught me, which was when you you're not always going to have a piano in front of you, but you will have a desk, your knees, the air, and you can sit there and play. And when I do that right now, I'm playing in midair here. I'm in the key of F, F, A, C. I can hear it in my head. I go up to the B flat to play that. I can hit a an F with an E in the bass, which is not what you'd normally play. That would maybe be a passing tone to the F. So these are things that that whether you can hear the music or not, you, you can at least hear it in your head and then go to arrangements. And I've, I've made ample use of that over the years uh, with Little Feet for arrangements. When I wasn't sitting next to a piano, I could still figure out what I wanted to
2: do. Okay, for some people it comes easy, for some people it comes hard. What was your experience? Uh, it was a combination of both. Uh, every Everything
4: that you attack in earnest comes with difficulty. And having a great teacher, that's your your mode of either, am I going to crawl under the fence, dig under it, am I going to go through it, or am I going to pole vault over it? And the teacher is there to to give you options and guidance on how to do that. Because you're going to hit the wall at some point. And she also gave me one important lesson too, Bob, which was At some point when I was giving a recital, I was going to blank out. And she said, don't let that freak you out. She knows that terminology. Don't let that panic you. It happens to most people. And she mentioned a couple of her older students where it had happened to them. And it didn't happen under her watch, but it did take place. And it was on a a Mozart D Major Sonata. And I completely forgot where I was on the piece. And... It about destroyed me. I mean, I was like and I I looked at it later, I go, She told you not to,
2: to let it get in your under your skin, and I did. Uh, but not for long. Well, just to continue the lesson, if she told you not to panic, what did she tell you to do under those circumstances? She said just to to uh if
4: you need to get the music up there to, to reorient, do that or try and find a place where you could could stop and start again and continue, but uh, in any case, if you had to just throw up your hands and say, uh, you know, enough is enough, then that's okay too. It's uh, it's a part, it, it was like the terrible twos, just the way I, I gathered it. It was going to happen at some point. I was playing a, a gig with a solo show at the, uh, oh, where was it? Um, Maryland, I guess, Annapolis. And uh, the audience is there, and they go, hey, sing Dixie Chicken. And I go, uh, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm like d- driving Miss Daisy in the back of a car. I've never sucked Dixie Chicken. I know I could do it, but I don't know the <laughs> lyrics. <laughs> so I said, why don't we sing the song together? Just a just chorus. And so I started playing with it. And I said, let's do a couple rounds. So we did that. Uh, yeah, I, I, I've had to stop and start with I was on stage with James Taylor in front of 20,000 people and I, had a, I was hooked up to a uh, a synth helper, you know, like a. would recorded some stuff in there and I hit the button late or I didn't hit it or whatever happened and it screwed up. And I had to stop the song and I said to the audience, I said, we're going to try this again, but without the, to, to alert James, without the recorded music, take one. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I just think, you know. You, there are times when you can let the audience in on on what's behind the curtain. and you always have full access to to keeping that curtain where it is too. Uh, it's a matter of style. and uh, I try not to take myself too seriously. Uh, the only thing I take seriously is is having fun while doing it, but being serious to the to the approach of the music itself. I call that serious fun. So uh, it's a reason we have arrangements within Little Feet or that I've been able to play on other people's songs. Uh, and I'm very quick at what I do, generally speaking. Uh, or if I have a more complex idea and people go, hey, can we stop it there? And I go, allow me to do two more things before we stop it. I want to add another instrument and then this. And then tell me if you like it or not. They go, oh, okay. And then, oh yeah, that sounds great. Or whatever i mean i've rarely hit a brick wall to use that terminology again with people in the studio but but occasionally it's happened and what it does i just say you know i think we ought to just call it is we're, we're not going to get much further it's not it's not an, an immediate hey i give up i don't give up but there are just times when you have to know when enough is enough and say i'm not communicating with this person with this artist uh i don't really have much to add to this song. And that's okay. Other
2: songs will take its place. Okay, one of the other big issues taking piano lessons as a kid is practice. Did you practice?
4: I did practice uh, to the point where years later, uh, Terry Katz, who was a, kind of a, a Valette a bad guy, uh, that lived beneath me at Ventura, he came up to me at the Ventura Theater years later with Little Feet. He says, and he apologized. He says, you know, I, I didn't know why you had to practice all those years. But I get it. <laughs> I get it now. And so a part of what I'm writing about my book is this notion of people thought, the other kids thought maybe I was Liberace or something. So I would prove I wasn't Liberace by stealing their girlfriends, by hitting a home run, By making a basket at uh, center court or whatever the hell I do, uh, skateboarding, later surfing. By that time, people knew I was a a regular guy. And what is regular these days, anyway? But in the 50s, yeah, there was like, you were either uh, not Elton John. Elton John took his cue from Liberace. You were either Liberace or you were, uh, you know, Jerry Lee on the piano, putting your foot on the keyboard. So I was more of jerry lee but i was also i had the acumen to play more of the style that liberace would play which was classical music Uh, so it it was the practice is what allows you to do that but it is also something that disengages you or can uh between you and the audience and uh i've had kind of fun with uh in writing this book to describe a little more detail, what what is involved in that, which is not a heck of a lot more than what I've just told you, but it's a, uh, I could share one more story with you if you if you'd like. Sure. With with uh, I was playing with the Doobie Brothers. and was on a, a particular song, and what what I would normally do is I'd go. This is my second album with them. And they had a certain kind of kind of eighth note feel on the top part of the keyboard. It was the last song I was playing that day, and I was a little tired. But I, I thought, you know, and I threw in this stupid lick in the bridge, and I stopped the tape. And John Landy was the engineer. Ted Templeman was producing. Tom Johnson was behind the control board as well. I said, "Fellas, uh, let me do let me do that lick again." I was just goofing around. They go. No, 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 Bill, we like it. I said, no, I I don't like it. It's I, was, I, I don't want it in there. I was screwing off, okay? I had to go inside the control room. I said, look, when I was in fifth grade, maybe sixth, I'd get called. Bill Payne will now play the piano at these assemblies, Washington Elementary School in Ventura. I'd get a standing ovation. I would walk up to the keyboard, I'd play a little Chinese ditty kind of song, rock and roll type of thing. And I'd walk back, standing in ovation to my chair. I'd go on the playground, get beat up like everybody else. 22 years later, I get a call from Tom Johnson. He says, not like, hello, Bill, how are you doing? It was like, you know that lick that you didn't like? I go, yeah, Tom, what about it? He says, "Was a result of the lick that you didn't want on the record, that we kept and the story you told, I went home that, that evening and called that song China Grove. I go, you're welcome. Where's my publishing? <laughs> <laughs> and we cracked up over that. And there we are. So the intro to China Grove, that's you. You came up with that. It was a, it was a lick in the middle the, the br- <osphericDave manchmal> That, <Cantelcor> that right. lick there. I didn't mean I did it because I meant to do it, but it was, I was kidding around. Uh, it was a joke, and that's why I had explained the joke of the Chinese song that I played and you know, that kind of thing. And not the Chinese music is a joke, far from it. But in the context, it was. So, yeah, things like that. I I uh, I thought that was pretty interesting. And it might have been twenty four years later as opposed to twenty two, but it was it was a long time later. Tommy and I knew each other for a long time, so that was kind of fun.
2: Okay, let's go back to the early days. You said, on one hand, kids perceived you as Liberace. On another, you know, you were out on the playground getting beaten up and hitting home runs. So what kind of kid were you? Good student? Bad student? Did you fit in? Were you a loner? I'd say uh, not a
4: great student. Uh, but people recognized I had musical talent. and. That talent was represented in a couple of fashions. One was there was a a a room that was that was out it was indoors, but it was it had an open ceiling, uh, so it was in the middle of school. Uh, I think I was probably in third grade. Mrs. Julie was our principal there, at Washington Elementary, and they put me in this class with probably four or five other kids. And they said, you can literally do anything you want to do. And I looked at them, and I said to the one or two teachers, what did they have there? I said, can I break these windows? And they said, well, we wouldn't recommend it, but if that's what you want to do, go ahead. So we were these little test subjects as to what would children do, given the opportunity to, to paint, to work with clay, with You know, you wanted to draw, Uh, if you asked for something they didn't have, they would would provide it for you. What I found out from that was that I was much better at uh, something if I was given direction to do it, and then I could augment from there. So it wasn't a strict, hey, do it our way, the highway. Here's what we suggest you do. Uh, We'd like you to paint. Paint us a picture of you and the little girl that lives across the street from you. And I would have tried to have done that. But just to open, that blank canvas, Bob, it, it, it stopped me dead in my tracks. I didn't know what to do. I had too many options.
3: Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury
0: Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter.
2: Okay, so you're in school. Do you have a lot of friends? Are you into sports? Yeah, I love sports.
4: I I uh, I, I did have a lot of friends. Uh, mainly the on the street I grew up, it was all girls. There was one guy there, excuse me, but the rest were girls. So I learned very early that don't mess with the girls uh there are repercussions to that and it took me a couple three times to learn that lesson which I forgot later in life but uh it was it certainly hammered into me uh, almost literally when I was a kid that you know girls are tough if you want to play the Alamo with them fine if you hit them with a a kitty stable or the girls running across the field you leader with with the dirt claw and hit her in the head other repercussions to that which which there were um, but at school in general i was not not super shy i i went to the in sixth grade there was a track meet and i i, I asked the school if, if we could take i was a program chairman was was voted in for that could we take half a day off to hold a track meet and we couldn't hold the track meet with Dr. Coffee, which are the, the people that held it before because they had issues with insurance and with, uh, I guess, kids got injured or something. Somehow or another, I, I because I really wanted it, I convinced them to, to do exactly that, give us a half day off. We had pole vault, we had high jump, we were doing races, we were doing all kinds of things. So when pressed to the wall, uh, Again, was something I really wanted to do. I was capable of crawling out of my shell and making sure it happened. So I, I, I felt I was sort of an, an anomaly in a certain sense, in that I possessed enough uh, moxie to step up when I needed to. But in general, if uh, if if I walked into a restaurant and somebody singing happy birthday to me when they knew it wasn't my birthday, I was embarrassed. Uh, now look, I haven't been embarrassed in a long, long time, but I didn't, I didn't come out of the box that way. I, I came out like, Hey, is the water, is it safe? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and, I, I didn't even know uh, as a, a musician that I wanted to be in a band. The first band I auditioned for was after I lost my teacher, at age 15, and I auditioned not to play piano in this band, but I, play, I auditioned to play drums. So what does that tell you?
2: You know, it leaves a lot of open questions.
4: It does, <laughs> which, which is the reason I'm writing this book, because I, you would think with the way I play piano and with the acumen I play on a little beat, but with everybody else I, I, I've had the privilege of playing with, uh, I'm not shy about it. I mean, I take a unless I'm asked to hit a whole note or uh, in the case of playing with, with, um, um, it Bob Ezrin and, um, oh man, I, I never think of the band's name. The guys that did the wall, uh, um, Pink Floyd, Pink Floyd wouldn't play Pink Floyd. Bob Ezrin told me every note to play. So I went, okay. Jeff Piccaro was there. Uh, the guitar player, D- David was there. And, uh, I just, well, if those guys don't care, then I'll just play hit it at A, C, J, R, B, you know? Uh, when Jackson Brown did that to me, I said, why don't you come out here and play this song, Jackson? It was on his, I think it was his second album. And I played on one song already, but every time I'd play a chord, you go, play it like this. Then I'd play it a couple bars. Like, No, play, instead of D, F sharp, A, play F sharp, A, D. I finally said, would you come in the room and play this for me? So he did. And I said, is there any earthly reason you're getting me to play like you when you can play it just fine and you're wasting your time and money getting me to do that? And so he was that year that we we had that conversation. And Playboy magazine had him as, uh, I think, rock piano player of the year. <laughs> And I said, Will you call me back? If you call me back, I will take direction, but I want to be able to put some of myself into it as well. So the song was Here Come Those Tears Again uh, on the Pretender album. And uh, I played on more than a couple songs on that record. And I was able to kind of do what I wanted. The Pretender, by the way, is Fred Tackett, who plays in Little Feet, uh, which I never knew or didn't know until a few years ago.
2: Wait, um, wait, the Pretender is Fred Tackett? Yes. Explain a little bit since you know Fred. <laughs> I, I can't imagine what it
4: means. I mean, Fred is, he's just, he's from Arkansas. He's, uh, uh, he's probably done as many or more session, session work than I have. Uh, there was a, a session in which we were playing for uh, uh, Abraham Laboreal. And I have met his son, of course, who plays right. with, with Sir Paul McCartney. Uh, anyway, Abe LaBroyal, Jeff Picard on drums, Fred Tackett on guitar, acoustic guitar, and I play keyboards. Uh, the producer calls me into the room and says, what's Fred Tackett doing? I said, what tracks he on? He goes, 17 and 18. I went over to the board. It was Richard Perry's studio, studio 54 in, in right. Hollywood. I pulled the, both faders down and the track, even with Jeff and, and, uh, and Abe and myself almost visibly sagged. I said he's your glue, and I pushed the tracks back up and walked out of the room. So what what he could have been a pretender about is beyond me. He he was more like a glass of water, which may may be uh kind of the same thing, which is who is he? Is he really who we think he is, or is he the pretender? I don't I don't know the lyrics to Jackson's song.
2: Well, I certainly do, but we'll, let me go back a chapter. <laughs> You're talking about being in high school, and you talked about stealing the girlfriend. Yeah. And it's funny that you mention that because that would imply a strong inner confidence. In addition, I know how hard it is to make it. Could you amplify what you were talking about there or why you mentioned that? I mentioned that because it was, hey, it was true. It was a, It was a step
4: of 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 showing those that, that might have thought because I played piano and was not always at the practice field to, to play softball or wherever, uh, that maybe I wasn't as manly as they thought. And it wasn't a competition along those lines or was I supposed to be, but I kind of took it as such. And I do have that passive-aggressive nature of... Uh, I can be very competitive with people when put to the test, but I don't like doing it. But but if it's there, I'll, I'll go for it. And, and so if it, if it was a, because I grew up with a block full of girls, I wasn't intimidated by them or off put by the fact that they were different than us. Uh, I used it as a way just to, to act as a, a cool guy until I got older and then got flustered by it in <laughs> a couple of times in my life. But but in general I just thought, yeah, I, I feel confident being a guy and, and uh did I think Marilyn Monroe in the seven year itch was beautiful and would would have loved to have kissed her and whatever. And I thought, yeah, she was gorgeous. I, I liked women, I like girls, so uh it was one way one way to, to do it and, and or to, to, to be involved and, and later, much later. Uh The cliche is, yeah, I started playing rock and roll so I could meet
2: girls. Well, yeah, that's part of it, but it certainly wasn't the whole thing. Okay, but let's stay there. Your first band, you say you're going to play drums. At what point do you want to play with other people, and music is changing while you're doing this. You know, rock comes in in the early 50s, then we have Elvis in the mid-50s, then we have the crap pop acts of uh, Fabian, Bobby Rydell, and then the Beatles come in in 64. So what was going on in your life as all these things were happening in music? Having a a
4: sister that was nine years older than me, uh, she introduced me to Elvis Presley. By virtue of the fact she went down to the record store to buy uh hound dog. And I was as enamored with the music as I was the visual of the RCA label with the dog listening to the phonograph. So I liked both a lot. Uh, I also, like most kids, grew up listening to radio. And there was a guy named Dick Shipley who was uh, one of the DJs in Ventura. And, and we had the rotary phones, so this, the first caller to, to call in will win a record so I'd have my uh, second finger on uh, first finger on on the uh the last number to dial I'd be the first caller well the, the record I won was the ghost of Billy Malou by Dorsey Burnett and Dorsey's son was Billy he had a brother too I guess um so music was magic to me. Okay, great, but what is the application? The application of 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 music and rock and roll, and where I would fit into it, was a more arduous and long process. So by the time I got to the point of auditioning to play drums, I was aware of a lot of different music. I liked a lot of different styles. I liked everything from Alley Oop by the Hollywood Argyles to uh, you know the. Uh, Marty Robbins song you know El Paso with a cool guitar and and all that Uh, I fell in love with the Beatles but I also fell in love with the Rolling Stones oh you can't love them both I got well I bloody well can, mate it's all right so uh that that kind of thing I just uh picking and choosing battles is, is a part of of i've spent a whole lifetime going well why did you do that why are you doing it this way why would you do this you know i hadn't written i, I wrote one song called tripping out in 1966 the label was psychedelic records Acidhead productions <laughs> and there was a group called something wild okay well something wild in 1966, we had our photograph taken with Peter Asher, Peter Gordon. Uh, 66, I would have been 17 years of age. If it were February, I would have been 16. So I've got a, a pretty good photo of Peter and I standing next to each other at least 10, 12 years before we actually met each other later. It's a Dickinson tale, in other words, which is the reason I'm writing this book. Um But the obvious for me has not always been obvious. Uh, And I'm not slow, Bob, but I I just, sometimes the application is something that takes me a little while longer to, to figure out.
2: Okay. You're living in Ventura, which is a beach community, although there's somewhat of a city there. How big a deal were the Beach Boys, Jan and Dean surf music for you?
4: It was a real big deal. And, uh, I just had a nice shout out from uh, from one of the guys in the Beach Boys the other day. Um, there were and I didn't really know the cats, but I mean, my my, my brother knew uh, uh, Carl and I, uh, Van Dyke Parks and and uh, Brian and I were at a piano at uh, Sunset Sound. Van Dyke ushered me into the room and says, "Play this song with us." So myself, Brian, you know. <laughs> And <laughs> Brian and uh, 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 Van Dyke were, were playing this tune. But yeah, Jan and Dean, I love, I love the music. I love the, I was a surfer. Uh, other than getting invited by Jackie Stewart to play with the Rolling Stones in 19, I think it was nineteen eighty eighty one, must have been 81. Uh, one of the biggest thrills of my life was to, to be asked to join a surf club because the guy saw me surfing at C Street in Ventura. And I go, well, you want to join this club? Which I did. And uh, about a week later down in Windon Sea, I got run over by somebody else surfing out there. And I had uh, nine stitches put into my hand. And the uh, the doctor who saw me, I, I go, well, where, where can I go surfing again? I would say two weeks. So I went home to my parents and they said, what did the doctor say? They didn't even go with me to the and I, they said, he they said, I'd go surfing immediately. So I went, went out, and surfed for a couple of weeks, came back. And go, oh, this looks remarkably well. It's it's dry. It's it's looking fine. And you came within a millimeter of losing the use of your left hand. By the way, I go, okay, doc. Uh, hey, w- when can I go surfing again? Oh, I'd wait another two weeks. And I went right at the door, went down to the beach, went surfing. So I have a problem with authority, right? Which is another place where musicians and people with creative impulses kind of coalesce sometimes. Not always, but a good percentage of the time we do. Uh, it accounts for all kinds of mischief and for uh, uh, being particularly thrown into that that vat uh, not that many years after we got out of school, like in the late 60s, with uh, LSD and everything else, that was coming into vogue. Uh, it 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 was like a fire burning through a forest. It took out a lot of people. Uh, you know, it was just it was just something we had to deal with. It's, it's a historic uh, point in time, uh, as somebody like yourself knows rather well. Uh, I look at myself as a survivor. But I also found out pretty early that I couldn't keep up with people that had a different bent towards towards that type of thing. So, uh, you know, I I think of myself as fortunate. I also think of myself as fortunate of being in, in Little Feet where the the emphasis to put Little Feet together between Law and I was, let's have a vehicle that is expandable, that fits whatever music we're trying to play. Do we need horns? Do we need another guitar player? Should we... Th- contemplate another keyboard player. What do we need? Let's come to it based on the music that we're playing and what we think we, we need at the time. And so rather than the f- first set of music that we played for Ahmed Erdogan, which were essentially all instrumentals and more like Frank Zappa-esque type of music, uh, we we rather shortly after, after uh, Ahmed said, boys, it's too diverse, so we we went back to the drawing board and went, oh, okay, so we put the songs that Brides of Jesus, Hamburger Midnight, Strawberry Flats, uh, I've Been the One, Taking My Time. All these songs are when the titles themselves display, a uh, Captain Gunboat Willie display a diversity and eclecticism. You can imagine this type of music we played for Ahmed Erdogan, it must've been off the charts. And much later when I found out who Ahmed Erdogan was, and his association with Ray Charles, I go, oh my God, if I'd known who he was, I would have been too embarrassed to
2: play it for him. Okay, let's go back. So <laughs> you try out for being the drums. Do you play in bands in high school? Do you stop your education after high school? You go to community college or college? And at what point do you say, yeah, I want to play music for a living? The the drum instance only took place during the audition
4: for this particular band and i had had a bad go of it in ventura where i drank too much and i didn't want to kill myself but it almost happened uh, my parents picked me up they go oh, there's a kid there's her mother i mean his mother called and wants you to audition for a band that was them saying we want to try and help you out here during the audition, there was a piano set up in the, in the, uh, the, the room that we we're playing in. I ambled over to it and with the lifted the top up, didn't sit down, just stood, stood there and played. They go, hey, wait wait a minute here. You play the piano? I go, I guess. I've been playing the piano for 10 years at that point. They said, forget this band here. We got a band down the street. It's called the Debonaires. You're going to play keyboards. Forget the drums. So yeah, I played drum. I played keyboards, farfisa organ, which is like a, a an ear an earwig buzzing through your head and and drilling your brain full of holes. I know it was a horrible sound, but everybody and the brother was using it. So I played that instrument through high school. I went to a year and a half of junior college, which included uh, let's see. Uh, Alan Hancock Junior College, which is in Santa Maria, which is where I was going to high school. So I moved from Ventura to Santa Maria in high school. And then I went back to a half semester uh, at Ventura Junior College. And I might add that my volleyball coach at Alan Hancock was John Madden, who was running a football team there. And a year later it was down in San Diego and they went up to, to Oakland. I go, I like that guy. Oh, that, that was my volleyball teacher. But he never taught us anything. He says, show up, you make this grade. Show up to this thing, you make this grade, et cetera.
2: I got a football team and walked away (laughs) from us. (laughs) Okay, so what's the motivation to stop your education and what's going on with your professional musical career at that time? Frank Salazar, who
4: was my counselor, and he was also the conductor of the orchestra at Ventura Junior College, I had a one-on-one with him. Toward the end of that first semester, this is in '68. The world was on fire, literally and figuratively, in '68, with the assassinations of uh, of Martin Luther King, of of, of Robert Kennedy, uh, the continuation of the uh, riots uh, throughout the United States in the black communities of Detroit, L.A., etc. Uh, it was just a rough time, and the Vietnam War was in full swing. And I was bound and determined to join a band uh, that would bring me up to some sort of value musically that I felt I deserved. I wasn't much for for jamming in the key of A for 20, 30 minutes at a time and jamming in the key of D for another 30 minutes. It didn't speak to me. I could do it, but I didn't like it. So he said, "Look, if you want to get out of here, I don't blame you. We can't teach you anything here, but you're going to be drafted if you if you get out of of the uh, out of school." I said, "Well, I'll take that chance." So there's the impetus and the the pretty real roadblock that was in front of me to just to, to search out who, not that long after, would would be Lowell George. Because this was in '69, the my uh, semester at Ventura Junior College was in '68, so by '69, I'm out there, done with the dog paddling. I'm going to start swimming and see where it takes me. I went first to Northern California uh, to a band up there, and I I met a couple people there, but I I didn't I wasn't confident enough in who I was and my abilities to to know the avenue or to, to to choose a path on how to present myself to people. I heard the album uncle meat after turning down a couple of bands up there. And this is Frank Zappa's record. And I went, man, that's the kind of music I want to play. So I went back to, to Isla Vista, which is kind of a home base, uh, about an hour South of, of Santa Maria, uh, next to UCSB, the university at Santa Barbara. And, uh, With a phony calling card, there are two two people I could call, two labels. One was straight records, the other was bizarre. They were both Frank Zappa's label. I chose bizarre. And I called up the lady there, and not with one conversation, but maybe four or five, perhaps. I convinced her that I was an okay kid. I was new to all this. I wasn't sure how to do anything, but I needed her help. And not initially, but shortly thereafter, she put me in touch with Lowell George, who had been asked to start his own band by Frank Zappa. And that's how I met Lowell.
3: Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity Presents a New Chapter in Luxury
0: And find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter.
2: Okay, just going sideways for a second. Whatever happened with the draft? I was drafted shortly after I got in uh, in Littlefeet,
4: and uh, I will keep this truncated because it's a it's a long and involved story. But the gist of it was, um, I got the shrink to at the LA you know, before you could say, Oh, I'm gay. I'm, I'm this, I'm that. They go, well, Hey, now come on in. We don't care what you are. You're going to the army. You're going to go down to Vietnam fight. Uh, a dear friend of mine, Gar Huffman, uh, he and his brother D, uh, Gar was older than D and I, and he was a medic in Vietnam. He said, whatever you guys do, do not come down here. It's, it is a free for all and not in a good way. And, uh, uh, if you got to go to Canada, do it. Whatever you have to do, don't don't come to, don't get drafted. So I took that as a, a means of I'm going to do whatever it takes not to get drafted, which is why I made the, the shrink, after several maneuvers, come down three flights of stairs, at L.A. at the L.A. draft board, to order me out of there and send me to a hospital. We'll draft him later, and a nurse saw me at the hospital. As this young doctor was walking in, she goes, "Doctor, he's nothing but an animal." And I go, "Yeah, lady, and you're the one who wants me to go off and kill people I don't know, and I have no business having a rifle, or I don't believe in this war, period." And not long after that, needed uh, Walter Cronkite. So uh it was, it was that kind of world, Bob. As you, as you know, we're, we're about the same age. I'm a little older than you, but uh, we uh, we were faced with something that was just Kind of like where we are now, uh, insurmountable in terms of where does the truth lie, what does truth mean, uh, does it mean anything.
2: Okay, just to be clear, you talked to the shrink and he put you in the hospital after you told him what. I didn't say a word.
4: I was lying there in a fetal position and I made them make the action of physically picking me up and putting me on a bus to Fort Ord. or ordering people to send me to a hospital, which is what the guy did. I, But that was probably my fourth time, certainly my second or third, no, one, two, it be my third time at that draft board, uh, of which the first time I went through, I signed everything they put in front of me, saying that I wouldn't. And I realized re- rather early on that it was kind of like the, the, the book First Circle by uh, Solzhenitsyn, where you're in a, a holding tank someplace and and you don't know if it's day or night. Uh, so hours don't mean any, anything. Time doesn't mean anything. And later on I went, oh, that's like being in a recording studio. You kind of divorced from, if they don't have windows in there, you could be in there for 10 hours. And it, uh, it's like the theory of relativity according to uh, Einstein. If you have a beautiful woman on your lap for a minute, it seems like an hour. If you have a person. Maybe not so beautiful on your lap for, for, or excuse me for an Anyway, I got it reversed. I, it's a sexist tale. And I shouldn't tell it anyway, but, uh, I, I just thought I've got to take the chance on not being drafted so I could play with little feet. And that's exactly what I did.
2: Okay. What did you tell this woman in Herb Cohn's office? Bizarre that motivated her to put you together with Lowell? I told her that I
4: had taken piano lessons for a long time. I played locally with several bands as I got older. I wanted to keep it short. And I I told her that um, I love Frank's music. I didn't want to meet Lowell. I want to meet Frank. Frank was over in Europe. He wouldn't be back for a month. So in that month interim, would you be okay with meeting Lowell George? This is after he introduced me to Jeffrey Simmons, who was with a, a group called Eureka. Uh, when Jeff heard me play at the Tropicana Motel, which is in his, his room, he had a keyboard set up, he then goes, well, I play keyboards too. And I'm going, well, that's great. Why'd you have me come down here? But I didn't say that. I go, oh, Okay. Call this person back, and there's a guy named Lowell George you might want to meet. So it was, like a lot of things, there's a very circuitous route to meeting Lowell. And indeed, when I when I went to his house, uh, I had it set up, and there was this beautiful blonde girl sitting cross-legged on the floor. Doors open. It's summertime. She's listening to uh, Eric Satie. She goes, oh, you must be Bill." Lowell's expected you he'll be back in four or five hours <laughs> i said well what does he do when he's not expecting you so, <laughs> so, so continue
2: go. the story so tell us about ultimately meeting him
4: so when he came in i spent a because she left not too long after that i had a long time to like you know study his house he had a sitar on the back uh, uh, corner, right-hand corner of of the, the wall in this rustic house in the Los Feliz area off of bin Lomond Drive. And uh, he, uh, he had a samurai sword on the on the very back wall. Next to that was a kitchen, very rustic in nature. Uh, his record collection included uh, "Ohm" by uh, John Coltrane. He had an album that, that Frank Zappa had released on Lenny Bruce, uh, and he so he had Lenny Bruce out an album or two of Lenny's uh he had a, a couple of albums with um, oh, the the blues collection that uh the Smithsonian Blues collection of which one of the songs on there was join the band hey Lord join the band which we put on the top of uh waiting for Columbus uh, he, he had music with with uh Jester Burnett, Helen uh, Wolfe, <clears throat> and with muddy waters. So he had a, he he was a very eclectic guy, and I kind of and I, his book collection was everything from uh, uh, I'm looking over my book collection because I still have the same thing too. A collection of poems by uh, Carl Sandburg. Uh, probably he had I think he might have had the uh, Carl Sandburg uh, Lincoln books that he wrote as well. He had Last Exit to Brooklyn, which is a brutal book. Uh, uh, poetry by uh, Allen Ginsberg, Hal. So rather eclectic sense. By the time Lowell showed up and we began conversing one-on-one, it was like Che uh, Guevara and Fidel Castro meeting the first time, from what I have read, where they conversed about everything under the sun. And that's kind of the way we headed off. So by the time i i left there we decided well hey come back in a week let's let's continue this and, and we did and uh this is the the tale i'm trying to tell which is uh uh it's it's deep i i i only knew lowell for 10 years
2: but it might as well have been 100 years it was that, that kind of relationship so you're talking at what point do you end up playing some music not, I don't think it was that long after
4: I I I utilize a piano like most people utilize their voice if I need to illustrate something I sit down and play it you know it's it's a part of my vocabulary is playing the piano so he had an acoustic guitar available and I think we just started playing a few things there might have been little snippets of music that he had as I said I hadn't written anything other than some psychedelic tripping out that Elliot Ingberg from the mother's invention uh, about a month later, came through the door with that particular single. And said, Did you play on this? And I go, Yeah. I go, Where'd you find it? He says, In a band at a record store. And I got it because it said Psychedelic Music, Acid Head Productions from 1966. This is one of the first of those kind of records. And I go, Oh, I didn't know that. In fact, I didn't know what any of it meant at that
2: time. Uh, but shortly thereafter, I did. <laughs> so there we were. Okay. So you say that ultimately you audition for Amit, you go back to workshop, your wood woodshedding, you ultimately make a deal with Warner brothers. How long a period of time is this? And is there a manager involved? It was about a, uh, it, it was over the course of uh, roughly
4: a, uh, a year, maybe a little less than that, actually. Um, I just, Said with with uh, Russ Tilden in New York a couple of weeks ago, and Russ reminded me that he, we were going to go to Lizard Records, Lowell and I, and uh, I think Meckler Meckler was the, the head of that. I can't remember his first name, but uh Russ insisted that we go to to Warner Brothers, that at least we tag up at Lenny Wardecker's office, which is what we did, and. Interestingly, we, we went out there, just Lowell and I, Lenny had a piano in his office. We sat there and we played anywhere from seven to nine songs. Uh, <clears throat> it's kind of like going to Schwab's drugstore and being recognized at the, the counter and being asked to be in a movie. I mean, we didn't really have a band yet. Richie Hayward was with us, but we weren't in sync. We didn't have Roy Estrada was not in our band. We auditioned probably seventeen bass players the first six months or whatever. Uh there's a lot, of whom one of them was Paul Brer, uh, who didn't play bass, he played guitar. And logos goes, Well, it's two less strings. Go go for it, you know. So I mean that that kind of, I mean I wish it was loose. The only manager we had for about a nanosecond was a, a business manager, uh, Mr. Kibby. Uh Martin Kibby wrote Co-wrote uh, Dixie Chicken with Law, etc., and so his dad, uh, uh, Martin, was in a group called the fr- uh, Gosh, what was the name of that group? R- Richie was in a Fraternity of Man. Martin was in a different group, and they. Uh, his father said, "Boys, don't spend it all in one place." That was his advice, and I thought, you know what? That's very good advice. So I, I kind of adhered to that for for quite a while. So, what were you surviving on at that point? Oh, you know, that's a very good question. I mean, I, I would alternately live at my parents' house. I was hanging out in Isla Vista, which didn't bring in money, but at least I knew people I could sleep at the place or crash on the floor or whatever. I, I slept at Lowell's for, for the first month or two. And then the La Bianca family was murdered less than a half mile from Lowell's house. Uh, We had just met with Terry Melcher a night or two before. Terry was going over to Europe. He said, when I get back, we'll talk about a record deal. Well, purportedly, Manson, although this is up in the air too, historically, uh, whether Melcher was being sought out or not by Manson for not giving him a record deal. But for a long time, that was the story. Uh, But I wound up sleeping in Lowell's van because he brought in these cats with with Patricia one of the price sisters uh, of of which there were three three sisters one was married to Richie the other was married to Rick Harper our, our road manager and Lola was married to Patty and she uh i might add that their mother was Lulabelle, who sang the high part on the lion sleeps tonight uh for Telstar and she sang the high part on uh, uh that ooh, 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 uh, Star Trek so she, that was a family the girls came from and uh, so we, we had our own Hollywood uh, history going on there but uh, I eventually got out of Lowell's place and found a place and the, the lady got me a, she said I have an acoustic piano in my house it was a baby grant and uh, you know I, I was lucky in a lot of respects Bob of, of being able to search for something and tell people like the gallon the phone at Warner's or straight records or, or excuse me, a Bazaar, what I did. And they go, Oh, okay. Yeah. Let's try this. <laughs> did you ever have a street job? Uh, the only job I did other than play music was uh, I was a paper boy inventor. I, I had the most uh, customers that are out in, in the city. And uh, I had a good aim.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay so uh russ says you got a sign with warner brothers tell me the experience of making that record which you make with russ and i was living on the east coast at that time it was like it didn't even come out what was the experience for you the experience was a nightmare uh and that
4: i thought that they were uh Lowell and he were and russ were very good friends and as it turns out, they became disenchanted with each other over all manner of things, be it arrangements, uh, the music that was being chosen, I'm sure, uh, just everything. So that that made it a nightmare because two guys that I thought were dear friends were now dear enemies, and it made it very, very uncomfortable. It was the first album I'd ever played on. So I wasn't sure what to expect anyway. Uh, <clears throat> I hadn't been doing sessions at that time. I might have just started doing it, but uh, uh, I was I was completely a newbie at what was involved in any of it. So it was a difficult record to put together. Uh, it didn't sell any, it sold 11,000 copies. The first tour was... I felt uh, when we played New Year's Eve and, uh, oh no, it wasn't New Year's Eve, New Year's Day in New York City at Club Angano. uh we had two paying customers and the rest were from Warner Brothers. That probably eight or nine people were there. And I was so out of it in terms of the angst of being, well, I thought we we're going to be doing great because we stone had given the, you know the record, a, a good review, great review. In fact, on Strawberry Flats, maybe Hamburg or Midnight, and I. But we're out there, and we're like, we're no, we're nothing. No one knows us. Uh, we're up in Cleveland, and we're playing with the Vanilla Fudge. The audience goes, "Bring on the fudge!" And we're just like, "What the hell are we doing?" And we got to Texas, and there was a couple of girls there, and I went, "Oh, I get it." I think I like touring. So <laughs> touring's okay. Wait a minute. Forget what I said. I'm back. I'll be back on the road anytime you want. Uh, so yeah, thinking like a musician, like a dope. And there it was. And we, we went to make sale juice, which was a, a different proposition, but sold 3000 more. So another way to put it is, is the humility of it and, and having to be humble. At some point, you got to face facts, but it also taught me a great deal about Moe Austin and Warner Brothers, which is they were willing to to stick it out with with something that was not viable, but we were a cachet for them as well to people they're trying to bring in, saying, "Look, we've got Little Feet. We know they don't sell, but they they've got a great uh, you know they're thought of in, in glowing terms in terms of who they are, which is musicians, uh, composers, etc." It felt like a home to me with, with, with them. And uh, it, it was, uh, so So in that regard, there, there, were, there were a lot of lessons available, but, but, but they're all bunched in as lessons often are with, uh, you know, in layers.
2: Okay, I have to bring up "Willin," which is on both the first and second albums. Do you remember Lowell writing it? Did you have any idea the uh, iconic song it would become? What's your remembrance of that? The song "Willin'" is, I wasn't there when he wrote
4: it. They put it on on the record as not an afterthought. I mean, it's a good song. But uh, when I heard it, I had brought down with me from Santa Maria some country music by, uh, uh, you know, Conway Twitty, for example. Those are cats. I was listening to Conway Twitty, George Jones, what Willen sounded like to me, Bob, was was a caricature of not only a truck driver, but of country music. So the reason we re-recorded it for uh, uh, Sailing Shoes was we, when we got together and we had the piano on it, Lowell took a, a, a more serious approach to the way he was <clears throat> singing the vocal. Uh, that's... That's why that song's iconic,
2: not because of that first iteration. That's my opinion, anyway. Okay, and the experience of making the record with Ted Templeman? Well, I I, I took a little bit of a
4: backseat on that record in terms of letting Lowell make his statement heard. Uh, Richie and I, on the other hand, when we were rehearsing for it, I said that we were like two tornadoes crisscrossing each other in a room, you know, on the songs that, that allowed, which hardly any of them did, but for the, the lead up to that record, we were able to to, to jam certain songs, but they weren't one-note jams. They were songs with, with chord changes, but we would play them with a complete and, and unadorned ab- abandonment, uh, and we laughed about it because yeah, we're being paid to do this. It was our little our little clubhouse, you know. Uh, I might have driven all a little crazy, but but not all that much because we would have got time to to play the actual tunes. We would we would settle down and try and adopt a more studio approach, which is to say a more conservative approach. But we we took every opportunity we we could to put the the pedal to the metal, as they say, and open up the car and drive it as fast as we could when we could. So it was a, it was, it was an experience where, by the time the thing was over, I'll, I'll be perfectly honest with you, I don't remember Teddy in the studio at all. I, <laughs> I do He must have been there, <clears throat> but if he was, and I, I apologize, Ted, but I don't remember seeing him there.
3: Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required.
0: Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not with 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. Going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter.
2: Okay, so that album comes out. That also is unknown. When I first came to Little Feet, a track was included in one of the two-disc sampler albums that Warner put out, and there was amazing buzz on the third album, Dixie Chicken, which I then bought. So tell me the transition from Sailin' Shoes to Dixie Chicken. The, The
4: main transition between those two albums, Sailin' Shoes and Dixie Chicken, was losing... Roy Estrada on bass. We had played in Cincinnati at a gig with Captain Beefheart, and the sound system broke down, and Lowell was told it could take 15 minutes to fix it or an hour and a half. We don't know what. He says, I'm going to go ice skating. I go, ice skating? I better go with him. So I did. I'm watching, you know, do all the loops and stuff. I said, we got to get back to the gig, Lowell. Come on. So jump in a cab. The cab, well, I don't know where the gig is. And I, there it is. Throw the money out run, him. run into the hall. And they are lined up. I don't know that Don Van Vliet, Captain Beefheart was lined up. But virtually everybody else was. Artie Tripp was the drummer. He had family in town. They'd fixed it 15 minutes after we left, and we were gone for over an hour. Roy Estrada was also in that line and he basically told us to jump in a jump in lake. Uh, and by that time, we went, really? Okay, we will. Best of luck to you too. <laughs> and we, we were actually very pleased to get rid of him because he threatened to leave us at every juncture he could. And we'd have to talk him back into it and this and that. So I don't think Lowell did that to, to make uh, anybody angry, it was just the way Lowell was. If uh, Lowell wanted to do something, he would do it. Uh, but that opened the doors to Kenny Gradney, who was the first one to walk through the open door of of the two guys that would come in from uh, Delaney and Bonnie. That's, that's covered the base in Congress. Paul Barrera was brought in earlier because we Richie and I felt like Lowell needed some help on the guitar because he's trying to do too much. Uh, he he needed some help rhythmically, not literally help, but so he could play. He was just starting to experiment with slide guitar, and we thought, well, he can play rhythm and slide, but boy, wouldn't it be nice to have some cushion for him to to react to? Uh, Paul. His brothers, they all went to Hollywood High with each other, so they knew each other. Uh, so that was a transition and a major one for us. It also gave another partner to write with as well. Uh, um, but, but having Kenny Grady step in from Delaney and Bonnie, Rick Harper knew, uh, the guys, uh, uh, what is it, uh, uh, studio instrument riddles. Cannonberry there down there, and they they brought Kenny and he said he just uh, just got out of Delaney and Bonnie. We had a gig coming up in in uh, Hawaii at the Crater Festival. He says I want to bring my partner in, and his partner was Sam Clayton. This so was said sure. So we all go to Hawaii, playing Crater Festival Crater Festival for forty thousand people. Uh. It was it was a dream come true. And so Sam Clayton right then and there was like, yeah, I love the band and he was in. So that's that's how that transition took place. And, but it also introduced which we had we had been familiar with New Orleans music before either of those guys got in a band. I mean I I came down to just uh, uh, see Lowell in 69 knowing fully well who uh, uh, Professor Longhair was. Uh, what what his influence would might be at some point, uh, and also uh, Clifton Chenier and the stuff that he was doing so wide open was was the word. So when we got those two guys, they knew about New Orleans music. That was just a handshake and a a slap on the ass,
2: and we were we we're off and running. Okay, Dixie Chicken comes out. The title track is now iconic, and. Took me a few plays to get into it, actually. I first started with Juliet, then Lafayette Railroad, and then kind of worked my way backward. What was going on inside? Did you feel like you were finally getting some momentum, or same as it ever was? I felt we were getting momentum. Uh, That's a great question. That's uh, uh, all I've been.
4: Uh, yeah, we, we were getting momentum, and uh, there wasn't any of the angst before. We we're trying new things. I tried playing synthesizer for the first time. Uh on Fat Man in the Bathtub, which I believe is also on that record. I tried a Mellotron or some additional instrument which had drunken Mexican trumpets, uh, which they wouldn't call call them these days, but there they were on the that's what the sound was called. So I came up da 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 ba- bum. Uh was about East LA. It was so there's just a lot of inventiveness going on with, with those songs and, and how we were going to play them and attack them. And the uh, that openness, I think on that record in particular, transformed in a nice handshake to that album. The interesting thing, though, was it sold a few more copies because of the notoriety of the record. But some of the reviews, while glowing before on the first two albums, that, that, uh, every song sounds the same that kind of thing so in other words when you put your head up uh, where you're, you're visible above ground that's when people start taking shots at you <laughs> which is another thing I learned and I went oh I thought we were the darlings of the press <laughs> hardly uh, but in general we were and we were certainly uh, well thought of in in Europe and in England in particular so a lot of doors were even at that time, unbeknownst to us, but they were starting to, to slowly pry open, which would, would bode well for the future, uh, except that we were a band, and like a lot of bands, and uh, the discrepancy between our personalities uh, didn't lend itself to always shaking hands with one another.
2: Okay, so the album after that is the breakthrough because it has your song "Oh Atlanta." However, yeah. being honest. Uh, I'm not quite as enamored of that as I am of uh, Dixie Chicken, but it does have the original version of Spanish Moon, too, which yeah. is iconic in the Double Live album, which comes out in 78. So tell me about the experience of Feetstone Fail Me Now. Don't Fail Me
4: Now followed a breakup of the band. Uh, it, there were a couple of iterations on how to try to get the band back together. One was putting Lowell, and myself into a, what warner's thought of as a super group with john sebastian and uh i believe it was phil everly so one of the everly brothers which we had a meeting about it at musa frank's restaurant i met Fay ray that evening who flirted with each and every one of us i reminded john sebastian of that a few years ago he goes i don't remember that i said well yep she was there uh, not at our meeting but uh, at the at the main bar as you walk in through the through the doors particularly coming through the the back door there's two entrances into uh the dining room one is you take take a right uh the the other one you take a left and that's where they film most things for movies is when you turn left a more the formal part of the dining room uh Phil's wife said you're not going to do it it's ridiculous and we did so then Bob Cavallo stepped in. He says, I got, there's a guy, Steve Boone, from The Love and Spoonful, which is the band that John Sebastian was in. Uh, he's got a studio in Baltimore, Maryland. Might we take a shot at recording there? You'll, you'll live back there. You'll have free access to this studio. Do anything you want. I mean, Bob, a lot of great things happened there. I met Robert Palmer. I met uh, through Amy Lou Harris, my first wife, Fran. Fran Tate, uh, George Massenburg came in from Barclay Studios in Paris to work with us. So we knew each other, uh, or met each other at that time. And then uh, and our George, Lowell's daughter, was born at that time. So a lot of great things were taking place for us. And it really felt like a a reunion of of of, of good magnitude and and uh, uh, we were able to pour a lot of good energy into it, and, and we've recorded several different records. We we also became quite famous in Washington D.C. as a result of living back there. So there was a, a perfect storm of, of good things happening for us. Tell me about the band breaking up before that. I I think what was going on it was it was this was fi- primarily financial in regard. We just couldn't. We were having a tough time making ends meet. It, it created a tension, uh, which it would do in any kind of marriage, and, I'm, and I'm, certainly being in a band is a form of marriage. Uh, and Bob Cavallo came to one of our band like the night before we go on tour. He came in. He was like laughing and kind of you know jovial about a few things, and he said, "I got I got some news for you. We just canceled the tour." We don't have enough money to to get out there and do this and we're like kind of stunned and i walked up to him i said well why were you why were you like why were you laughing when you came in he says i was so upset about it i didn't know what else to do i said "Look, okay. you know a real human response and i and i went you know what i i completely get it i always thought bob was a, 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 a wonderful wonderful guy on that level and I, I trusted him. I said, okay, fine. Well, uh, but the, the, the decision was made to try the super band. It was also what was else, which still wouldn't have helped Richie or Kenny or Sam or anybody, uh, at least not initially. Uh, but then Lowell also, there was another thing that he did that I believe proceeded going back to, to work in maryland and record there and that was a robert palmer record sneaking sally through the alley and a lot of people thought it was us it was the, the meters we playing and boy if you're going to get confused with a band <laughs> uh, you could choose a lot worse bands than the meters to get confused with so uh and by the way we got to sit in with those guys you know the neville brothers etc uh there's there's a there's I had one guy at one point was going, well, what are you playing? He didn't say it to me directly. It came in through another person. What are you doing playing New Orleans music? You're not from there. I said, well, tell your friend that I, I play Mozart. I'm not from Vienna, Austria. I'm not from Germany. I play Bach and Beethoven. Is that okay with him? Oh, and my parents were married in New Orleans. So maybe through osmosis, I got some of the, the juju. I don't know. You tell me. They're against that competitive thing. You know, I'm not a purist when it comes to music. I, I, uh, and I adore some people that are. Don Girlnick was a purist, played piano with, with uh, James Taylor, with Lyndon Ronstadt, beautiful jazz guy. He and I discussed this a few times. His approach was if this is the way Bill Evans did it, then I'm going to play it like that, you know, that, that kind of thing. And Don had the chops, <laughs> excuse me, to, to play it any way he wanted. I said, I don't bastardize it on purpose, Don. I just what I'm doing is I'm taking segments of things and appropriating it to music and to my writing and to my sense of what ought to be there, not as a uh, an affront to anything.
2: Okay, so then we have the last record album. Which for me is a return to form, and you're you're writing more on that album. So what's going on there? Well, long
4: well, and I had a, a pretty substantial battle before going in to make. No, the last record. Of, excuse me, I'm, I'm diving ahead a little too too early. Uh, that that album was made in Hollywood, which is why we have that Hollywood uh, drawing the neon park so beautifully painted. Uh, it was not one of my favorite records, although it had some great songs on it, but I just felt it was very stiff, uh, disjointed even. And that could have been just for me. You know, perspective is, is a lot that rolls into us. We've, we've been accused through the years, and I think rightfully so, that our records aren't as good as the way we play live. And I think just, you know, it's subjective, but for me, I think there's some truth in that. This is one of those albums that I thought was, Uh, let me just put it this way we we won the german album of the year of the year award and when i heard that we'd won uh, won that award i looked at a couple people in the band i said i told you it was germanic and stiff and that's that's the result of (laughs) that and they went there you go so it was one of those i mean it's it's silly to say it but it was uh it's kind of the way I felt about that album, and I, I don't. I rarely listen to our records. I do on occasion, Uh and they actually sound pretty good. I got. I got to admit. So
2: okay. So the next album, "Time Loves a Hero," I bought it. It seemed like something completely different, and Lowell was barely on it. Saw that tour. What was going on there? Lowell was. Uh, uh, I
4: think that the tailspin Lowell was going through was healthy health wise, uh he we, not he, we we made it difficult to work with one another in general. He would be there, he wouldn't be there. I mean kind of like what Jerry Garcia was doing with with the Grateful Dead. He would disappear at times. And then when he'd show up, you go, Oh yeah, hey Lowell. hey Jerry, welcome back, you know, that kind of thing. Uh but we had a very real proposition of, of not being able to make an album with him or without him. And Paul and I got together and I thought, look, <laughs> I don't know what to do here, but we ought to go, let's, let's talk to Ted Templeman about doing a record, let's play the songs we have, see if he'll do a record with Lowell in there, but maybe Lowell is not as present as he should be. Let's let Lowell figure out who he is. I know he wants to do a solo record, Let's let him sort some of that out, uh, see if he's amenable to letting us take more of a stand in this. And that's what we did.
2: Okay. And then Lowell ultimately does make a solo album, which comes out two years later. And was the band really together at that point? It, it was. Uh, Paul, Paul and I, took a lot
4: of flack for having taken over the band from people on the outside. And I I, later, when when I was able to articulate it in in this fashion, I said, look, let me explain something to you. Tell me if if you think I'm right or wrong or I'm just whatever you think. Here are the facts. We didn't, it was fine that Lowell made a, a solo record, but if we were keeping Lowell from writing music for Little Feet, why did why are there a hey, why are there so few uh, Lowell George s- songs on his solo record, and why did it take him five years to make it? So, I said that's a good question to ask yourself. He was in a tailspin of his own making, not ours. Is, is what I was getting at. It didn't to me. It didn't ever denigrate his talent. Uh, uh, I I thought Richie Hayward and and Paul Barrera were probably going to be the first guys to, uh, you know, leave this world at the rate they were, they were gone. Uh, so discuss the show. We we, you
2: know, we, we don't know what's going to happen. Tell me a little bit more about where Lowell was at with this tailspin. Was it purely drugs or what was going on? I think
4: a lot of it was, 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 uh, uh, lifestyle, but it was also just trying to figure out. Uh, I think he was he was battling some health issues. Uh, he was overweight, obviously, and uh, so that so that was coming into play a little bit. It had to be. Uh, he had trouble maintaining his his vocals out on the road. We had to play a couple of shows with, with him there, but he couldn't sing. Uh, that's that's just you know that's just losing your voice, that kind of thing but I think things were you know because I, I wasn't inside his head I just thought that that he was he was disturbed by a lot of what he was going through internally and that these things because the the pressure of being thought of as a leader of the group uh and even with a guy like myself that took over the reins from time to time like when we did the the record of the TV show uh, uh, midnight special. A uh, 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 Bob, uh, who's the guy that produced that show? Anyway, the producer of that show got got in touch with me. He said, "Did you would you put a list of people together for us to do the show with?" I said, "Sure," but why don't you have Lowell do it? He says, "Because we want to make sure it gets done." Uh, Ehrlich, I think Ehrlich. anyway. Bob Ehrlich, uh, so Ken Ehrlich, do you mean Ken? Yeah, Ken Ehrlich. Right. Excuse me. That's yeah, so a Ken Ehrlich. So I brought in weather report. I brought in you know Linda, Bonnie, whomever was on on, on stage with us, Nicolette Larson, and uh, Emmy Lou Harris might have been there too. I can't remember. But uh, yeah, there, there there was an increasingly more of of that where Lul was mirroring kind of what Jerry Garcia was going through, where a lot of the emphasis was from the press was on both Lowell with Little Feet, Jerry with with The Grateful Dead, but neither one of them really wanted the mantle of being a leader. They didn't want the pressure of it. They, They wanted to be the artist, play, compose, give them room for that, not like, the king that sits there every day and has to to go through, should I do my laundry with this kind of detergent, your uh, your worship, or or this? I mean, it was just, no, I I want to be left alone. I want to do what I do, play some of your songs, let's do some of mine. It was just convoluted. And and the the sign of the times was the drug thing hovering out there, which was never uh, that far away from, from what we were all going through or what some were going through, I should say, I'd given up on it a few years before. Uh, It made it harder, harder to, to, uh, to deal with one another, to deal with life.
2: But plus we're young guys. So. So Lowell's on the road promoting his solo album. He dies. Was that a shock to you or did you expect it? Or if, did you figure if it wasn't going to be this, it was going to be something else? I thought it was a it was a shock to me, and then uh
4: in the uh, in my ability to to come to grips with it, it's like when you're in a a car accident or or getting close to a car accident. And at least for me, the few times I've been close to something like that, my mind is like kind of clear. It, it doesn't like fog up. I'm like I've got this way to do this or this way to do it. And I'm going to do one of the two and make a decision to do it. Later, it hits you like a ton of bricks as to what actually happened. So what, what hit me initially was a shock of his death, but, but I rather quickly elevated to, does he have insurance for his family? I don't think he did. So we, I so said, we're going to put a concert on at the Forum, which we did. And we raised money for his family. And we tried to put, and I, we did put Lowell in Good Light because that's what we should have done. Uh, I think the story of Lowell George uh, is is one that, not unlike beatnik poetry, if you just talk about his death and whatever cost it, because there's a lot of stories surrounding that too. But I kind of look at it like beatnik poetry. You, you throw Jimi Hendrix's name into the hat along with Jim Morrison, Nick uh, Garcia, uh Brian Jones, Janis Joplin, you name them. And John DeLuci, they, they all have very similar avenues in which they went out. And there's there's discrepancies, too, on how they died. The fact is, it was a culture and an overload system that, that brought them to that early demise. Uh, and their hearts were the things they gave out, too. So I don't... In what I'm writing, what I'm talking about now, I, I my focus is more on, yeah, Lowell, Lowell passed away. Uh, he left this legacy with us. We're intertwined with one another. Uh, I was quoted in People Magazine as saying, you know, "Great, or People Magazine, not the, uh, uh, you know, foreign, <laughs> foreign press." Um, as saying that, without Lowell Georgia would not be Little Feet. And it was reminded of that when we put out Let It Roll. And I said, you know, I did say that. And that's the way I felt at that time. And I I morphed and, and gravitated to a different way of thinking about it, which, ironically enough, was, was more to the way Lowell and I thought about the band when we put it together in 1969, which it should be an open vessel as to who's in it and when, uh, what material should be included and how. And does it sound like Little Feet at the end of the day? If we play Happy Birthday, does it still sound like Little Feet? You know, But if we write a great song, does it sound like Little Feet? And I think the answer was was debatable for a lot of people. Uh, some heard us and said, without Lowell, it's not Little Feet. Without Richie, it's not Little Feet. Without Paul Brer, it's not Little Feet. And a lot of other people, and I mean a lot more, go, you know what? This, this ties me to something that, that reminds me of what was great about you guys. And guess what? It still is. Because you can't walk up on that stage, Bob, and play and fool people. You either grab them by the throat and they come along with you, or, or you're sitting there going, uh, we aren't what we thought we were, which brings you back to the very first album with those feet, thinking we were going to be the Beatles.
2: Okay. So in these ensuing decades where you've continued with Little Feet, Little Feet's membership has morphed, you've worked with all these other artists, has there been any plan or are you just bumping into stuff? How did this all play out?
4: Well, there, there, is, a, there is a sense of jumping from log to log just in terms of, hey, what am I going to do uh, when Little Feet's not there? Oh, uh, I'm going to play with Linda Rossett for for a year, a year and a half or, or less. I'm playing with James Taylor. That goes on for six years. Now I'm playing with Bob Seger. Then I say, I want to put little feet back together, which which let it roll. That's life in general. You know, we we, we can only plan so far. The best laid plans have meant, et uh, But But having the ability, I mean, at the age I am now, of... Uh, I mean, honestly, if I didn't or couldn't play with Little Feet anymore, I think uh, I I wouldn't probably enjoy it that much, but could I do it? Yeah. I mean, I'm not financially hanging on to a, a thread necessarily, but it's I love playing music as much or more than I ever have in life. And I don't want to mislabel something that, that isn't something. But as I said when you walk out on stage uh and you look into people's eyes out there and, and, and judge from the looks on their faces as to whether you're connecting with them little feet is one of those bands that people either go who or they go oh my god the the, the little feet that kind it's special to them they they have they don't care. They're like the Grateful Dead audience. If, if Jerry Garcia looks sideways at Bobby Weir or vice versa, they were the first to bring it up, right? Uh, within Little Feet, it's the same way. If not everybody that we've, we've played our music for has, has liked the iteration of the band that we have, but the, the group as it stands with Tony Leone, with Scott Gerard, Fred Tackett, Sam Clayton, Kenny Groudy, myself, they're like doing handstands over this group. And so are we. I think let's, let's, you know, that I mentioned John Coltrane earlier. The last iteration of the band he had, and he played with some great people over the years, he felt like, you know, this group, it's not a matter of whether it's the best one I've ever worked with, but it certainly holds with, with the best that I've worked with. That's the way I feel about this band. Is it better than with Lowell and at his height of powers and, and whatnot? Well, in certain respects, it's not better, but it's just as good. It doesn't have law, and you can't replace law. Maybe with uh, AI we can, and they will. I don't know. They'll, they'll have to cross that bridge when they come to it. But for right now, if live music is, is, is such and, and recording is such, and you're going to write a song, those songs come from the heart. They come from a place that AI doesn't possess. It has an intellect, which is... uh it's not a bad thing to have <laughs> sometimes, but it's not everything. You have to have heart and a, an acumen to to know uh, when to play, when to lay out, when to say, you know what? Maybe that acoustic piano is not the right instrument for this. I'm going to play a Wurlitzer. I'm or I'm going to just lay out of this section. I'm going to have uh, uh, I'm going to ask Linda Ronstadt to sing softer on this duet she's doing with with uh, uh, Craig Fuller on the song that the Laker organization tapped as as a song, as a goodbye song to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Voices
2: on the wind. I defy AI to come up with any of that. Yeah, I'm certainly with you on that. Let me just, a uh, little cleanup work. You yeah, talked yeah. about the finances. So how has it been financially? We started from ground zero
4: about a year and a half, almost two years ago. And it took some doing to, uh, to build the coffers up to where we could actually begin to, to breathe a little easier. Uh, that's from good management. It's from good planning. Uh, it's from from us doing what we're supposed to do when we, when we hit the stage, which is which is deliver. Uh, the old adage, as you well know, is you're only as good as you were last week, right? Or how you were thought of last week. So uh, some people cannot handle that pressure. I welcome it. You know. Uh, we we marched on stage uh, with Let It Roll in South London with Bonnie Raitt and man, woman, and child that were in that audience, Bob. We were about six feet up, looking out over them. Their arms were crossed across their chest, looking at us in a defiant mode of prove it. And by the as the set wore on, their hands dropped to their sides. By the end of the set, their hands were in the air, and they were like that for twenty five minutes after we left the stage. That's what I want. I'm there to prove that that what we're doing, what I do when every time I walk in to, to play music with somebody or to hold a, a conversation with somebody, I've lived it, I've lived the life, I'm still living it. And uh hopefully I'll know when to relinquish center field uh if I'm dropping fly balls like Willie Mays was in center field, maybe I'll call it that right
2: now i'm i'm catching everything that's hit to me so i'm gonna keep playing but just drilling down on the money for a little bit second you were in a band had multiple members members forgetting today throughout your career i mean i'll be very specific you end up playing with leftover salmon which had to deal with hollywood records but really is more of an indie jam band more of a localized colorado scene are you taking those gigs because you say hey I like them, or you say, listen, I need to work. I need to pay the bills. I start with, do I like who I'm working with?
4: And at one point, I, I had to say to them, to leftover salmon, uh, I got an offer from the Dewey Brothers, uh, which came about in a just way, but I, I, uh, I pressed the issue. And I'm going to be doing very well financially with those guys. I've known them for a long time. And I'm not going to be able to play music with you any longer. And I know it was upsetting to them at first. And I said, remember, I was the old man in the sea for a long time uh, with you guys. I'm not with them. And I I don't feel like I played any worse or less than I play with anybody. I, I come in as a team player. I come in as a, I don't have to, to be in the band in order to play as if I'm in the band. So that's that's my attitude. I've turned down I, I've turned down money. I was offered a chance to do the the to write the, the theme song for uh, cops and for Baywatch. I turned them both down. My agent about hit the wall. He said, Are you out of your mind? I said, Yeah, I guess I am. Well you call yourself something different. I said, I would still know it was me. I've worked around enough. I mean, you know, that's what musicians are from time to time. We're prostitutes,
2: but you choose who you want to lay with, and I don't want to lay with this. Okay, are there any royalties of significance from the Little Feet era and from the songs you've written? Yeah, we did pretty well.
4: Uh, the The era that we live in now, as you know as well as anybody, the the streaming. It's an outrage. It's, uh, it's 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 not right. I don't think much of what is going on within the, the rule of so-called rule of law these days, or what what uh, masquerades as law, is right on any level, personal or otherwise. Uh, as to what to do about it, uh, again, like most things in life, you choose, pick and choose your battles. If it's something you think you can can uh, mount a campaign and make it work, uh, then more power to you. Generally speaking, these things do do not, people with with power and wealth do not relinquish it uh, easily. And they're not about to do so with with the streaming services, but we'll, we'll see where it goes.
2: And you're going on the road now and you're playing complete albums. Concurrent with that, you're releasing repackaged versions of the second and third album, Salem and Shoes and Dixie Chicken, with additional stuff. Tell me about the decisions to do that. Uh, our, our management came in. They, they thought uh, with the notion of
4: doing Waiting for Columbus, which we did, uh, that it would be good a Warner's had a uh, a desire to to possibly re-release a couple of records, maybe more. And I had just played with the Doobie Brothers on a couple of. Uh, I think we played in New York at the. Uh, uh, what was the big theater in New York? Is the Beacon? The, yeah, the Beacon Theater. Uh, we played a couple of albums there. I know that. Uh, steely dan you know don don's done it i thought yeah i, I like the idea of it and then we what we will do that's maybe a little different than at least what the doobie brothers did to a degree uh if we're playing juliet maybe we'll lengthen it a little bit you know we, we nothing's written in stone with with us we we can we're not going to disguise a song like maybe bob dylan would we'll make it where they know that it's Juliet, if if they're familiar with the tune like you were, uh, and play it. But but I want to have the ability to to mess around with tempos a little bit from time to time. Let's let's see what the arrangement is. Uh, do I play it uh, piano with strings? Do I play it just rows? Do we have a a mandolin as opposed to a guitar playing some some parts to it? Leaving our improvisational style intact to play the album, but not replicate it in its, uh, you know, as as the Eagles have have done. You go to an Eagles concert, I've been to one, I guess, uh, and they'll they'll play the record. By God, it sounds like the record. That's the style. I don't knock it at all. It's just not our style.
2: And why do you live in Montana?
4: I live here because of the beauty of it, the solitude, the fact that it gets 50 below zero during the winter. It keeps the riffraff out. It keeps the riffraff in. <laughs> it's, uh, uh, it's just one of those places where, because I travel all the time, I wanted to come back to someplace that felt like you know, where where people aren't, uh, you know, I'm just another guy up here. I mean, people know who I am. It's not that they, they, uh it's I'm not a I'm not afraid of celebrity. I'm not Lowell George. I'm not, you know, I'm not a celebrity, but I kind of am in a certain sense, and become more so as people know more about me. But what they quickly learn about me is look. I'm still the same guy who gets beat up on the playground like everybody else. I just happen to have a talent to play piano and I've I've utilized it in a pretty grand fashion throughout my career to do just that. So I can be the uh I told somebody on a Doobie Rodgers tour that they're driving a bus and they, yeah, but you're a rock star. I said, Well, if you want to think of me as a rock star, go ahead. What I am, in fact, is a musician. And I I hold that to be I've played with a lot of rock stars. I've met a bunch and I admire, you know, I admire those people. Am I one of them? If you want to think of
2: me as one, go ahead. I don't really think I am. And on that note, I think we're going to stop it for now. Uh, Bill, I want to thank you so much for taking the time with my audience. Very thoughtful responses. Uh, You never really know until you talk to somebody who they are, but you're obviously a thinker. So thanks again.
4: A pleasure, Bob. And I've enjoyed reading your, uh, your work over the years. Uh, I haven't always agreed with it, but I got to say that for the same thing, you know, you, you, uh, you hit them as you see them. And I think there's, uh, you obviously are a thinking person as well. And I, I respect that in people that, that can actually think. It gives them the latitude and, and the respect to do so. So I have a lot of respect for you. And I actually happen to agree with you a lot on, on a lot of things you write about
2: as well. Right. I wouldn't expect you to agree with everything, but, you know, in a world where everybody just makes it about the dollar, and I'm not saying the dollar is not important, you know, it's the penumbra, what's around the dollar and thinking about it. The way you describe music, that, you know, was certainly very insightful and not what you get from the average person. You certainly uh, said things you don't normally hear and I think will be helpful for a musician's well, I hope so. And, uh, and again, thanks for the uh, thanks for the conversation. I'll just leave it at that. It's a pleasure talking to you and me with you. Till next time. This is Bob Leftsitz.
3: or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
1: Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath and a two-hour nap because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout.